Welcome to the Monocle Banking Podcast, uh, Beyond the Vaults and Virtual Wallets. Uh, I'm your host, Michael Avery, very excited to be bringing you these conversations where we delve into the dynamic world of banking. And in this series, we really are going to be looking under the surface of uh, what makes banks tick. Uh, why do we have bank runs? Uh, why have we seen the recent stress emerge in the US banking sector and how are central banks playing a key role in where the global economy finds itself at the moment from bank loans to bank runs from old school vaults to virtual wallets it's jam-packed and it's been a, a long time coming with uh, the monocle solutions team to bring you this podcast so whether you're a banking professional a financial enthusiast or someone who just simply wants to stay informed about the world of finance you're in the right place so let's get this journey going well, welcome to this first episode of the Monocle Banking Podcast. Uh, I'm joined now by the CEO of Monocle Solutions and uh, quite prolific author, David Buckham, in the studio here. David, in your office, uh, which is really a bit of a dream come true, isn't it? To bring this mm. podcast to fruition. It's something we've spoken about uh, for, for quite some time. And uh, I just want you to share a little bit more with us the, the thinking and the reasoning behind bringing this podcast out now in the latter part of 2023, given the mm. environment that now confronts banks and consumers around the world. Michael, thanks for being here and, uh, and agreeing to be the host of this new podcast, which I believe will fill a gap in the world of information. And I, I feel like we've got something to add. It's very significant. Um, I personally have been working uh, in banking for 25 years. Monocle's been going for 21 years. We uh, work all around the world with banks. And there are certain um, kind of obvious truths, which is this kind of frequency of failure uh, in the banking system. Uh, and there's a sort of cognitive dissonance that you that you see one thinks of banking as being very staid and very stable, but it's in fact incredibly risky. And I feel, I have felt for some time, and this is what we've been discussing, it's, it's about time that we, we have a voice and we create a platform where we can discuss these issues because after all, banking is the brain that provides capital the bloodstream, the cardiovascular system to the body economic. Yep. So if it is the brain of the body economic, then, you know, and, and it's frequently failing, and it's been asked to act as an extension of the state as far as, for example, money laundering and tax evasion and counter financing of terrorism is concerned, then I feel that we sometimes paper over some of these very obvious truths about the importance of banking in society. And given the experience that we have in banking, and given that I personally have uh, gone through several banking crises, I thought it was about time that we create a, a weekly podcast to discuss these matters with people that we'd want to hear from, that are from banks and that are from regulators. And also it coincides with publication of our new book, which is coming out on the 2nd of November. It's been launched. Uh, it's called Why Banks Fail. Aptly titled. 
Yes, for now, I think it's a very appropriate title. Why banks fail, unrelenting bank runs, the conundrum of uh, central banking and South Africa's place in the global order. And I think, Michael, without even going down that rabbit hole, we live in a country that's what I say, I call it the epicenter of this complex debate mm. between unipolar, a unipolar world of uh, a single set of values versus a multipolar world where there's no, not necessarily an agreement on a single set of values. Yeah, it reminds me of what Xi Jinping came out uh, in the last 12 months to attack the the universal values of the West, saying that uh, effectively those are Western ideals that are being imposed. It, it, it finds expression in the way we choose to supposedly remain non-aligned on certain key issues, when I think uh, quite clearly many can see through that facade and, and we quite clearly are aligning with the, one of those poles in this unipolar world that you're talking about. And and it's very much, you know, I, I like the idea of shining a spotlight in the dark places because I believe that sunlight is the best disinfectant. And you think about who guards the guards here. And often we think of central banks as all powerful and, and beyond reproach. But you just look at the Fed and there have been some pretty glaring missteps over the last few years, uh, which will come to over the course uh, of this podcast mm. and subsequent podcasts as well. So very exciting, fantastic to to finally be bringing this podcast uh, to fruition. And I want to just find out a little bit more about you because you're, you're a very interesting character. You talk about the the banking environment being historically viewed as grey-shoed bankers, fair-weather bankers, not take too much risk. Um, but, but you've got a very interesting path that took you to this place mm. of understanding. And you mentioned the allure of investment banking in the 1990s in the beginning of why banks fail. Can you just elaborate on what specifically drew you into the field, especially given your background in mathematics? So if I could go back, uh, be slightly self-indulgent and go back a little bit further to, to my matric year, which was 1989, I had call-up papers for Palaboa for infantry. And at that stage, we still had to do two years military service uh, under conscription. And I had a friend who said, if you just you know, phone this general, you'll get a call-up paper for Pretoria, and it will be paramedics, and then we'll be able to visit our parents. So I did call the general, and I did get the call-up papers for paramedics. And I wasn't sure what I wanted to study. And I definitely, I didn't want to become a CA and I didn't want to become a natchery. And, um, I, but I had, I had pretty good results. So I told my parents, you know, I'm going to go and become a paramedic. And my, my father freaked out and, you know, I, I didn't even apply for university and he, he kind of corrected my course. And I found myself going to UCT, but with no degree, like I, I hadn't chosen my course. So I decided to do a BSc with maths as my main, because I didn't really want to study physics or chemistry. I didn't really want to become a scientist. I just loved maths. So I had maths and English literature, and then, because they didn't conflict with each other, and I got the points, you know, could, you, 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 so I had astronomy, and I had applied mathematics, and I, I did one year of physics, and psychology, and then second year I did maths two and English two, and then third year I did maths three and English three, and then I decided to do an honors degree in English, 
and then I decided to do a master's degree in English. So I'm now, at, I took a while to do my master's degree. I enjoyed being at the university for four years doing my master's degree. <laughs> so I'm now something like 25, 26 years old, no job, uh, no prospects of a job either, having a degree in English, and really got lucky to get into the software field from my maths career uh, or my maths background, which uh, I worked for a U.S. software company called SAS, and they have software that's installed at banks to do kind of quantitative stuff. And it just blew my mind how cool the, the maths they were doing was to measure market risk. So I actually just had my eyes opened and I then studied a CFA, uh, which is to say that I wrote the exams and I passed the exams uh, for CFA. And during that time, I got a job as a trader at an investment bank. And it was fascinating. I mean, we were creating quantitative models that were based on theories that we had that would give us signals that would tell us to buy or sell. And yeah. it was like, we were trying to train the machine to, te to to give us, you know, quantitative trading is fascinating. And this is the early 90s. I mean, yeah. I yeah. Mean, now it's, it's, it's kind of de rigueur, but back yeah. then it was really pioneering and yeah. trailblazing stuff. Yeah, it was cutting edge. I mean, we had... We had code running. We were backtesting as-if models. We were backtesting scenarios. We had C-sharp front-end. I learned a hell of a lot. Um, we were making very small bets. I'd go to the treasury meetings. I was working at PSG Investment Bank at the time, and I loved it. You know, I, I didn't enjoy the – I won't say I necessarily enjoyed the – the environment, the, the treasury environment in that specific era. Mm. It was a very, very hardcore trading environment. And I had come from a, you could say, a more left-wing kind of, <laughs> you know, student union environment. So it was a little bit of a shock to the system to see these arch capitalists at work. And nothing against uh, arch capitalists or any investment bank. But what happened basically was, obviously, Sambo had a bank run. And I was there one Sunday kind of tinkering with my model, my quantitative model. And I noticed all the execs were there. And then I, well, I was of the view that this was the end. Like, yeah. it, it was self-evident that uh, any small bank with large, wealthy depositors, very similar to SVB, was going to have a bank run. And this this period um, was around the, you know, just past the millennium and everyone was worried that the yes. world was going to end because of the millennium bug and Y2K. Y2K, and Along yeah. came 2002 and this A2 banking crisis. Yes. So you mentioned Sambo. Can you just share a little bit more about your experience at the time and, and the, the kind of insights that you gained from that period that really influenced your perspective on the banking industry? Yes, 100%. I mean, I think the first point is a lot of people might not be aware of this, but what really went wrong was the dot-com bubble. So in the run-up to Y2K, which for, for listeners that aren't familiar with this concept was, uh, Y2K meant that you'd have, instead of 1999, you'd have 2000, and that meant that you'd have a run on 
uh, the, the binary code uh, would not survive in the old COBOL systems. And the theory was that actually the world was going to just stop working. Um, and it was like this um, elevated fear that because as the clock switched over in all the computers, like all banking systems and all insurance systems and all train systems and the world was just going to fail, which didn't happen. But also in the lead up to that was the dot-com bubble, which was like, there were companies like pets.com that had valuations of like 500 times earnings, you know. I can't remember the exact figures, but that bubble crashed in 2000, 2001. A protracted period of the stock market, particularly NASDAQ, going from about 5,000 to about 1,200. So massive losses incurred by shareholders. So in response, Alan Greenspan uh, lowered interest rates uh, significantly in the U.S. And uh, South Africa Reserve Bank, the South African Reserve Bank, lowered its interest rates in tandem, in lockstep, to preserve the carry trade and to preserve South African Kind of in investment attractiveness. Mm. And in some degree to protect the currency. To yeah. protect the currency. Um, but at the same time, Trevor Manuel, if I'm not mistaken, uh, found fault with the, with the kind of payday loans that were very popular. So what had happened is Sambo, Unifer, which was owned by ABSA, and a lot of the banks had massively expanded their their loan portfolios, their unsecured loan portfolios, and there was a law that was put in place by Trevor Manuel, which was to not allow the deduction of interest and capital on payday. So the viability of this lending became almost instantaneously unviable. And Sambo's provisions went from 300 million rand to 1.8 billion rand. And when they published that information, um, there was a bank run, and it was a kind of moral hazard to bail them. There was an issue of moral hazard to bail them out, almost like a carbon copy of the Lehman Brothers, and this pre predates you know Lehman Brothers, Lehman yeah. Brothers, and it it happened in South Africa. So ultimately, there was twenty two banks in the in the years two thousand two, two thousand three, two thousand four that were deregistered. African Merchant Bank, RAD, uh, Regal Bank, um, Sambo, Unifer. And I was working in banking at the time and going, wow, I thought this would be a stable job. Yeah, and these institutions are kind of invulnerable. I mean, they're not supposed they're to fail. Yeah. They're, they're banks. They are the yeah. bastions of trust and security and, uh, yeah. and steadiness. So, I mean, that must have had a huge impact yeah. on your view initially of a system, given the background that you just described, one of a, a, a very kind of liberal view of the world, and, and here you are at the heart of capitalism and finding out that the machine has a few ghosts in it uh, that don't mm. quite accord or square with where it should be. So you, your decision to then start Monocle Solution was, what, are the mid-2000s, just after 2002. this? 2002. So, so, so. It, so in the teeth of the crisis, you thought, well, 
I need to understand this better. I'm going to found a, a banking consultancy. Just take me through the, you know, what drove that? Because clearly there was a fascination with banks, with risk, with the ability of banks to fail. What, what then took you out of the trading pits and, and the tech side of the business to say, mm. right, there's there's an opportunity here to found a consultancy? So the I think the first point was that I found the contradiction between the sophistication that was required by the new regulations that were coming out. So in 1996, there was something called the 96 Accord for Market Risk, um, which was the introduction of the concept of VAR, uh, value at risk, for measuring market risk on a trading floor, which was incredibly sophisticated. You could use these Monte Carlo simulation methods, which was really kind of, for me, mathematically interesting, versus uh, the the actual risk that was taking place, which was that these banks were making loans that were not being paid back, and then realizing that the banks wouldn't fail because they made losses. They failed instantly because of bank runs. So there was also new legislation being written for the Basel II Accord, which was proposed to come out in 2005-2006. And I read what's called Consultative Paper 3 in 2001 because I was interested in how the future was going to look. And I just saw, like, massive opportunity, Michael. Banks were going to have to implement systems to measure credit risk on an individual credit obligation basis. And... This would require the use of statistical models. So I saw an explosion of opportunity. And from what I could see, the, the there was not a lot of interest yet by the big four uh, audit firms, and barely anyone had read Consultative Paper 3. So I resigned from PSG Bank as they were failing. Uh, they ultimately got bought up by ABSA. Yeah. The, I had to make an agreement with them that I that I, I wouldn't tell anyone I'd resigned because they were busy navigating some very difficult times, which was like they wanted to do the transaction with ABSA. So I said, no, look, I'm not going to say anything. But for my own reasons, I want to move to Joburg. I had been invited to speaking engagements because I was quite outspoken. And so I was flying regularly to Joburg anyway to, to speak in public at conferences. And... I spoke to a couple of people and they said, why don't you start a consulting firm? And so I registered a company and then the name had already been taken. And then I registered a, you know, I changed the name. I went through the CIPRO process and I rented some space. Um, and my father helped me arrange 2,000 rand a month rent. And... Um, I got a hundred thousand rand loan from my my father, which I paid back the next year. But it's it's that typical founder's story of friends, fools, and family to help you bootstrap yep. what, what is this effective idea. Yeah, I'm um, seeing what was coming down the the line. That time at PSG Bank was. Do you remember that as a time with fondness in your career? It wasn't a nice trading environment. The the risks that were being taken in the trading environment were high. And I think it was the people, uh, for the most part, were were really nice and interesting people. But I saw something that I didn't like about trading, which was that it was 
to a large degree gambling in my view. So proprietary trading as I saw it was gambling where you use the the brand as a kind of franchise and I don't think that it was a viable career for me. I, I didn't think that I would want to be taking other people's money risk and going to sleep at night. Uh, I found the technical aspect of banking far more interesting than the making making of money, you know, on a trading floor. Yeah. Um, and so sometimes, you know, people say to me, why didn't you become a trader? And Because I was a trader. And I'd say, show me any trader over the age of 30. And, and then there's not many that are, yeah. that are, you know. And also you'll know that proprietary trading is really limited nowadays. There's not a lot of proprietary trading that's taking place within the banking system. Well, I think um, we can debate efficient markets, but I think there is very little opportunity for that kind of proprietary mm. trading nowadays. And it was certainly back then an environment fueled by testosterone, mm. high stress, gambling, mm. high stakes. And there is an ethical component um, mm. Mm. that that I think does start to clash up, um, given that uh, you're dealing with the savings uh, and pensions of mm. very often uh, widows and orphans, for example, mm. and that kind of mm. thing. Mm. I want to move on, though, because mm. um, you then you've found this consultancy, you've borrowed money from from your family that you mm. know now you're on the line for, you've got to pay back, there's a lot mm. of pressure mm. on you. And in um, five years' time, we have the global financial crisis. So, I mean, that, that must have felt like uh, an interesting time for you. Because on the one hand, here is the world's financial system because of the collapse of mm. Lehman, mm. Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns and you know, all of these the, the toxic subprime mm. um, mortgages that have been resold and packaged up, AAA-grade rated um, paper. And you saw this coming, effectively. I mean, you, you did see a lot of regulation coming down the line, mm. Mm. but you also saw that there was something broken inside the system. Take me back to that moment and your experience through the global financial crisis and uh, how it impacted mm. you personally. Michael, it was crazy times. I mean, I... You know, we're, we're walking into South African banks, uh, you know, it's myself and a couple of guys, you know, a couple of guys and girls. I mean, really, eight people, six people, two people resign, four people, then six people. And I found it more difficult to get taken seriously by South African bankers than overseas bankers. So I used to travel regularly to conferences in uh, Geneva or London or Zurich, and I would present a talk on market risk or credit risk, and I would then meet people, and I, I got work that way. So at one point, I, I got asked by an Icelandic bank um, in 2004 to come over and do an assessment, a strategic assessment of their risk management capabilities, and I met uh, that the, the CEO of that bank, who, who was later imprisoned uh, following the crisis. And there were certain things that were very exciting. They wanted to comply with these new international laws, you know, that were coming out. And I was an expert in that. And we sent a team to Iceland and they lived in Iceland for two, three years. And then I got a similar call from a Hong Kong bank. And I had a team in Hong Kong. Then we had a Luxembourg bank. So it was like 
an amazing time. I mean, I was flying from Johannesburg to London, where we were also doing an implementation for a big bank there. Then I spent a day there and go and see the team in Iceland, and then I would fly to Luxembourg, and then sometimes to Hong Kong, and then to Singapore, and Malaysia. It was so much fun. Um, and we were implementing the rules. We, we were designing Basel II implementations. Yeah. We were, we were doing good work, I thought, that was supposed to help the banks. The irony being that Basel only really got sanctified and promulgated as law in these individual countries in 2006 or 2007, depending how the countries delayed. By then, the buildup of bad debt, the overleveragedness across all of these jurisdictions, like we had a client, small bank, that specialized in high street London retail exposure uh, through leverage buyouts, um, you know, management buyouts. And their risks were enormous, enormous. I mean, in fact, your, your research projects on bank failures post-2007 provided, I think, a quite striking statistic that you share in the book. 10.6% of the world's largest banks experienced some form of failure or bailout. Uh, you know, that's more, mm. just slightly more than one in 10. Well, what were the most surprising findings from that research for you? And how did this then reinforce your beliefs about the inherent risk in banking? So, yeah, great question, because... Even though you're living in a crisis, like the A2 banking crisis, and even though your friends all lose their jobs because of that crisis, and even though we lived through the global financial crisis and where clients not pay us because they no longer existed, I mean, clients in Denmark, Iceland, Hong Kong, you know, so we lost 60% of our business, not because they fired us, but because they no longer existed. Even though that was the case, you still have this kind of cognitive dissonance or this refusal to accept the reality. So what I did was I arranged for us to do research. So we took, there was a a magazine that still exists called The Banker Magazine, and it releases the top 1,000 banks every year. So we took the list that existed in 2007 in July they published it I used to buy it in London like a hard copy but we took that list and we we got the data for 2007 and then we went and got the income statements and balance sheets for all of the banks that were on that list in 2007 and then we got it for 2007 and 8 and 9 and then we created we normalized the data, which was a hell of a lot of work. I had a whole lot of students work on it. I had took a, like more than six, seven months, four or five people, because obviously each of these banks exists in different countries with different accounting rules. So what we wanted to do was to create um, a set of uh, ratios mm. uh, between the income statement, balance sheet, and cash flow statement and look at which ones were the most indicative of failure. So then we had to define failure. So now how do you define failure when the Irish banking system decides to guarantee all assets and liabilities and creates this massive moral hazard problem in the teeth of the crisis? Yeah. They effectively put all Ireland's banks 
out of business. I mean, technically speaking, all of those banks failed. You had the Royal Bank of Scotland had a massive government bailout. You had um, the buyouts of, you know, uh, the likes Bank of America bought Morgan Stanley. So we then decided we had to create a definition of default. So we said, okay, some banks just failed. Lehman Brothers, right? Technically, it wasn't a bank because it wasn't held under bank, the Bank's Holding Act. Yeah. And it was only after the, the crisis that Hank Paulson forced the Secretary of the Treasury and the, the head of the Fed, Ben Bernanke, forced you know, the investment banks to become banks. There's so many parallels here between, and I don't want to get ahead of us, between what we see with Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, which was behaving very much like a bank, yet wasn't regulated yes. as such, which we'll come to in a later podcast yes. on crypto. I was really looking forward to that, but yes. carry on. So, yeah, the, the the definition of default, there was doing the rounds, different definitions, and one study that we read had been conducted on the largest 50 banks in the world. And we used that definition and we made some modifications to that definition. So um, anything more than a 30% injection of capital, any blanket guarantee of deposits, like what you had with, for example, uh, SVB, which failed anyway, any blanket guarantee of assets. and So something like an African bank would be a failure. Yeah. So you can't, it still exists, but it, it was a failed bank. Yeah, without the backstop, without the guarantee, yeah. it would have hit the wall. Yeah. Yes. So you want to stop contagion, fear, panic, mayhem. Um, so we, we, we used a broad definition to get the target variable, which was failure. And then we were going to run a whole lot of statistical experiments to see whether the change in a particular ratio, like the, the quick ratio. And we found... There were two things that we found. One is that, my gosh, 106 of the top 1,000 banks in 2007 failed. That's a lot. I mean, I can't think of any other industry where that's the case. Not only that, I'd seen the banking crisis in South Africa, and I'd also not been paid by clients that had failed. And it started to really dawn on me that this was an extremely strange phenomenon that the organ of the body economic, the brain, that directs capital and liquidity to all other industries is inherently incredibly risky. And on that point, I mean, if, if the brain is that key organ uh, that is the banking sector and system, I think it's the prefrontal cortex of the brain, which is the executive function, which is supposed to regulate and manage things, is where we really see the heart and the root of the failure, which we're going to return to here on the Monocle Banking Podcast after this short break. Welcome back to the Monocle Banking Podcast. A fascinating conversation so far with David Buckham, the CEO of Monocle and author of a new book called Why Banks Fail. And we uh, ended off, uh, David, with this analogy around the banking sector being like the brain 
uh, of the body, really regulating that flow of capital, which is the bloodstream. And uh, I said that, you know, if that is the case, the prefrontal cortex is really the regulations that we uh, apply uh, onto the banking sector. And you argue that stricter regulation hasn't prevented subsequent bank failures from 2007 and the global financial crisis, and that so far interventions have been more effective than regulations themselves, which is more of a reactive kind of response. Can you provide some specific examples of um, why that is and, and why you believe these regulations inadvertently increase the risk in banking? Yes, Michael, I mean, it's it's worth uh, a brief explanation in, in that banks, when they make loans, are required to hold capital back as a percentage of what's called the risk-weighted asset, which is... If it's a risky loan, then the risk weight is higher. If it's a less risky loan, the risk weight's lower. And there's a long history to why this methodology came about. But the basic idea is that banks need a capital buffer so that if they experience loan losses, their capital can absorb those losses before they eat into customer deposits. So it's very sensible to have capital buffers that are strong enough and resilient enough to prevent loan losses eating past that equity into the debt, which will be, an, you know, that will be the end of the bank. So Lehman Brothers, many of the investment banks were, Lehman Brothers being most famously 32 times leveraged. So yeah. they only had like 30 billion of capital on a trillion dollar balance sheet. So something of that order. So the Basel Committee for Banking Supervision and also Dodd-Frank, which uh, was the 2010 law that Barack Obama put in place, essentially massively increased the amount of capital and the quality of capital that was required for banks to hold against their, their, their balance sheet, their assets, which are their loans. But think about it like this. First of all, at precisely the time when confidence in banking is at its very lowest, you're now requiring en masse the entire world's banking system to radically increase the amount of equity that they have. And where will they get such investments from? And from who, who will mm. invest in banks to such a degree at the same time in one go? So... It did create a situation where the quality of investor shifted from being a classic Western liberal investor to being Qatari investment fund or Sa Saudi. Those return on equity profiles diminished or, or, or had to as a result of this um, you know, increase in tier one capital requirements. You, you really sterilize. Yeah, so you're sterilizing the banks. You're also asking banks to find this capital all at the same time in a market that's just seen a global financial crisis. Mm. And also, the higher your capital is, the lower your return on capital, which is just a function of, you know, you, you have to hold more capital. So pre the crisis, interestingly, people like me used to consult to banks on how to have very thin capital. And so the idea was that you would create larger capital buffers. But more precisely, if you think about it like this, if I am a bank, and I, whereas I had, let's say, 30 billion 
dollars of capital. I now have to have $60 billion of capital. What happens is that I've increased the likelihood that I will get near my capital buffer range with losses. So inadvertently, I've increased the social signal that I'm near my capital buffer. Because what happens in reality is that you don't reach your capital buffer and then go, guys, don't worry about it. I've got a bigger capital buffer, so I'm going to absorb more losses. Life doesn't work like that. The regulator sees that you're near your capital buffer because you've absorbed losses. Mm. And then they call you in for a meeting and someone speaks out and there's a bank run. Yeah, it, you know, I mean, it gets into the marketplace, everyone yeah. gets tetchy, and in, especially in today's world, uh, and we're going to come to it around yeah. SVB, you could withdraw your capital electronically, there's there's no lines around yeah. the, the... So SVB didn't fail because, you know, they, uh, had, I mean, they incurred a massive loss in their bond portfolio. They failed because people withdrew their funds, and PSG investment bank that I worked at failed because people withdrew their funds. Sambo Bank failed, not even because of their loan losses. They were still completely able to continue operating. Banks don't fail because they incur loan losses that eat into capital. So by increasing the amount of capital, they increase the likelihood that you hit the capital buffer mark. You increase the likelihood of a bank run. So the only reason we haven't had massive bank failures worldwide is because of 10, 15 years of zero interest rates in the US and lots of guarantees put in place. So that's what we mean when, well, that's what I mean when I say interventions have prevented bank failures rather than regulations. Um, one of the conclusions I make in the book, which we will discuss at another time, includes lowering the capital requirement. Why, why, if you want banking to be attractive to investors, then you're going to need to lower the capital requirement to increase the return on capital. Why would an investor accept such low return on capital? Mm. Um, I mean, most banks trade at half their book value. It's such a, when you hear it put that way, such a common sense suggestion, although mm. it would seem counterintuitive in an environment where uh, to s stop climate change, we're having conversations around capital charges on banks over in, in, in Europe, but it's mm. such an important mm. point. Um, I know South African banks have some unique characteristics, and I think our ROE profiles are, are still fantastic, but still double probably what you'll find in, in more Definitely. developed markets as well. Mm. Uh, David, we're going to have to leave it there. It's been absolutely fascinating sharing a little bit more insights into uh, your pathway into the world of banking and founding Monocle Solutions and uh, uh, lifting the veil a little on why banks fail. Uh, before we go, I'd, uh, I'd like to extend our gratitude to you, the listener, for, for joining us on this uh, inaugural podcast. In our next episode, we're going to be delving deeper into the failures of SVB and others more recently and the sorts of questions that that raises for the future of banking here on the Monocle Banking Podcast. Remember, you can find us on Spotify, on Apple Podcasts, all good podcasting platforms, or you can uh, visit our website. Uh, and if you want to engage us, feel free to reach out. Thanks for tuning in. And until next time, don't forget to subscribe to our channel on the Monocle Banking Podcast.